Welcome to the Inside Out Money Podcast. Can't even recognize this place. Too many pieces of our past mistakes. Hi, I'm Maggie, and I believe real change starts from the inside out. So let's work together to improve our money and our lives from the inside out. We will explore all things money and our relationship with it. Join me each week with a rotating set of co-hosts, friends, and interviews. Let's jump in. Hey, Erica. Hi, Maggie. How you doing? Hi, Hi. Erica. Hello, Maggie. Said that. Hello. Hi. 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 Hey there. Hey. Good to see you. You too. Always lovely to see you. You and your mouth braces. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much. And me and my double chin. You do have the oddest camera angle of any computer I've ever seen. The camera is like in the crease of the laptop, right? It is. And it's this has got to be... That? It's LG. And this had to have been like a one and only model that was made for a prank. Because this is not... <laughs> it's just not a good angle. I'm not looking directly at the camera when I talk. I'm looking off to the side as if there were like four other people in the room, not you. It's just... this. But is, hey... It was free. So I'm not going to complain. I, I, that's what I was going to... I was going to tie it back into this today's topic. You're not really happy with it. We just talked about that offline. But it was free. So maybe you're like less annoyed. Because every time you complain about it, you're like, but it was free. It, it was, was free. a free laptop that was handed down to you. Yep. And- I didn't spend money on it. I'm, I'm grateful that it was given to me. And less grateful when I see the angle. But other than that, I can move past that. I can I can look past my own vanity. Also, like true friends, I love all angles of you. I, I feel like I'm the only thing I feel like is that I'm just like a lot shorter than you. And I'm literally like looking up at you. This is what your kids feel like all day. Like this is the view they get of you. Probably. Yeah. And this is you're like an adult. No, not like an adult. I am an adult. You- are an adult yeah sometimes you're like an adult sometimes mostly when we're together and when we don't (laughs) have our kids is when we're like adults but in my day-to-day life yeah i like to say i am an an adult adult. you you present you present i present well as an adult so do you so do you thanks really even with the braces and the tie like right now i present as an adult no i was just trying to be nice because you said something nice nice. to me okay 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 well we should get into like what this topic is about so if you're like who's here what's happening why are we talking about this you are at an episode of the inside out money podcast this is a personal finance podcast focused on redefining wealth from the inside out or from the down below up looking up at your chin whatever you want to chin up chin up chin up chin up guys each week i speak with a rotating set of co-hosts about a different financial topic to help you improve your financial mindset and tactics today we have co-host erica with us also known as like we go back over 20 years we met in our freshman year of high school or your saw i don't know no i'm younger than you well it's hard to tell from this angle who's younger that's okay? true uh very very good point uh <laughs> my eighth grade year subby year sub freshman yeah. year subby oh yeah eighth grade so i was a freshman yeah. yeah and anyways we go way way back to the early 90s and i've known each other for a very long time and so erica is here as one of our rotating co-hosts and we are going to talk about the economics of happiness and what will and won't make us happier in life with a slant towards the elements of life that 
make us money and cost us money. You know, there's the age old phrase, money doesn't buy happiness. We're gonna kind of like break down some of the actual elements of life and whether they do buy happiness or bring happiness if you put money into those areas of your life. And yeah, that's today's topic. I think we should start with a little primer on happiness before we get into some specific factors and elements of life that we'll break down and kind of share some comments and research on. I just think it's nice to kind of like take a step back and talk about happiness because happiness is often the thing that everyone's striving for, right? And there's so many different, there's so much different content and books and information out there about what brings happiness and and, and sort of, you know, a f- trying to break down happiness like into a formula. And I referenced this briefly earlier, but like happiness, it's an art, not a science, but But there is a huge amount of science to support this art. So I actually think it's both an art and a science, if you will. And Eric and I both did recently read a book that was written by Arthur Brooks and Oprah that is called Build the Life You Want. That's correct. So Arthur Brooks is a... He's a happiness scientist. Like, he's a happiness researcher who teaches at Harvard now. He actually teaches a class at Harvard that's, like, one of the most popular classes at Harvard that there's, like, a long waiting list for. But so in that book, he's, like, a leading expert on happiness. And in that book, he does break down his belief of as close as you can get to like a formula for happiness. And he talks about enjoyment, satisfaction, and kind of meaning or purpose. And he kind of switches back between the two. And he he calls them like the three macronutrients of happiness. And I I thought it was interesting because even when I heard some of those words, I was like, well, what's the difference between enjoyment and satisfaction? Like I I wouldn't necessarily know that right off the back and right off the bat. So enjoyment refers more to the immediate positive feelings we experience during an activity or event. So, you know, like we go to a play we enjoy it. Uh, Erica and I go to an Indigo Girls concert together. We have lots of enjoyment. Satisfaction relates to our overall contentment or fulfillment with a situation, outcome, or life in general. And there's a lot of research around to double click on satisfaction that like satisfaction is higher when you put work into something and when you kind of quote like suffer for something versus when you were just handed something. So if you cut a lot of corners, you're less satisfied. If you put a lot of work, if you, you know, if you won some athletic feet and it was like something you trained for and put a lot of work into your satisfaction level is higher than if you just went out and competed for the first time and just won because you just naturally are really good at something or got lucky or there wasn't a lot of competition or you know other factors that that made it easy for you and I don't know if that helps a bit but I just think that's very interesting how they talk about enjoyment and satisfaction and how you need both and then how much you need some level of meaning or purpose in your life to truly be happy yeah I I was while you were talking about that, I was thinking back to my college days. I'm about to get real nerdy right now, but I was a political science major. And if you think about the Declaration of Independence, uh, we are granted Which life. I think about a lot. Right, right? Yeah. All the time. So I'm looking at you because I know that's often yeah. on your brain. What I go to bed and wake up thinking about. Did you know there, just side note, but I think this could be, this is a funny aside. There was a like poll that was going out a while, like a couple months ago, maybe last fall about ask the men in your life how often oh, yeah, they, about Ro- the Roman the, Empire the Roman Empire yeah, yeah for sure yeah I had a whole conversation with our with Greg and our, our neighbor who's a guy about that and we were and they were like actually often like plumbing I mean just everything yeah I I asked a friend of that and he was like oh at least once a week and I was like I don't like I couldn't even tell you if it was like Roman Greek and then I realized like 80s movies or 90s movies like Tommy Boy is my Roman Empire like I think of Tommy Boy all the time quoting it in my head <laughs> 
often Wayne's yeah. World. You know, so that's my Roman Empire. But um, just side note, because this this feels like I'm going down that path with this. But our Declaration of Independence says that like we are all entitled to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And what's interesting about that is that Thomas Jefferson somewhat cribbed that theory from Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who was a French political philosopher who said that people are entitled to life, liberty, and property. And so Jefferson changed that. He thought property was too, I can't ex- really expound on what he vain. thought. Vain, maybe, but the pursuit of happiness. People should, yeah. I mean, you're, you're not really, not everyone is entitled to property because as we know, that's not something that is accessible to everyone unless you're going to take it. And so this was all within the bound of what Rousseau called like the state of nature, which is what yeah. defined our country. This is getting real nerdy. That's so fascinating though. Yeah, so he changed it from property to the pursuit of happiness. And so I think... Think, thinking about that for myself and how he was maybe originally, you know, hundreds of years ago intending this is happiness can come in different forms and it doesn't have to be in the form of this tangible property or intangible if you're thinking just land, that happiness can come in different forms. Yeah, I think that is fascinating. And I, I think, you know, another thing that Arthur Brooks talks about a lot in this book that that reminds me of is the idea that happiness is not a destination. It's not like a thing that we will arrive at. I think about that a lot tied to early retirement. Like I I falsely believed at some point that when I just like left my job, all of a sudden everything would be like rainbows and unicorns. And it's not right. If anything, like all of a sudden your other things are way more visible and aware than they were before. But anyways, the idea that happiness is not a destination. The idea is that it's a fluid condition that we are striving to be happier. It's not this like elusive happiness state, this fixed ideal of nirvana that we're trying to get to. It's not a state of being or a state of doing, right? It's an achievable change that we can actively work towards and and that you'll never get to like a level of unmitigated happiness. Like, it's just impossible to achieve. And thinking about it that way can be very dangerous to us ever becoming happier. And so I, I think what's so fascinating about kind of the way he talks about it is that you have to first understand what it is that you are even seeking when you talk about the pursuit of happiness, like you just mentioned, Erica, right? And chasing the wrong things can actually make us less happy. And I think that is to me is like a big aha moment that that is discussed in that book. Yeah, and and another thing that's in that book and a lot of books along the same type of, you know, self-wellness that can also tie in with financial wellness is intrinsic motivation versus extrinsic. So if you're intrinsically motivated by things, you're seeking happiness from within, you know, like what Maggie and I have talked about on past podcasts of finding glimmers, things that make you happy in your day-to-day life that really have nothing to do with big things. It's finding like the simple little nuggets that bring you happiness. And when you're finding that extrinsic motivation, it's when you're looking at something else outside of you, outside of your control, that you're putting all that stock into making you happy. So in the example, Maggie, that you just used about retirement, like, oh, well, I'm probably going to be so much happier when I retire. And you're probably no more or less happier than when you were working. But I think that's where this grass is greener idea comes in for people. Oh, I'll be happier if I just make this change. And sometimes that is true. Like in my example, I had been at my job for 13 years. I was happy in it for a very long time. And then I started just feeling that I was kind of defenseless against the changes happening within the organization. And there was nothing I could do to help the organization change. I had to make the change for myself. That was a change where 
I needed to find a greener grass and I'm happy I did. But there were a lot of other things there that could have kept me there for longer, but I just would have been miserable. Um, But there, you know, you say, oh, I want a bigger house. I think a bigger house will make me happier. Well, bigger house comes with maybe a bigger mortgage payment. Maybe to have a bigger house, you need more land. So you have to move outside of the city. Maybe that means you have to drive further to your job and you have a longer commute, which means less time with your family. Does that bigger house that you thought was going to make you happy actually make you happier? Yeah. Well, I think you said that rhetorically, but we'll actually break down the science and the research around the answer to that question soon, which I think is fascinating. Um, but yeah, I the, the other thing that what you just said reminded me of is he talks, and I say when I say he, Arthur Brooks in that book, he talks about the idea that some people are just more naturally happier than others and have like a more positive affect. And I think about that when, when I talk about like, you know, what you just talked about with, you know, leaving a company and, and me early retiring and different things of like, you know, sort of that I'll be happy when and something happens. And so you've got your own natural predisposition. And then you've got the whole hedonic treadmill concept, which is the idea that, you know, you think, oh, once this happens, I'll finally be happier. And then that happens and you've now actually moved the milepost further out to the next thing because you're barely sort of appreciating what you just got to, which which I think all these kind of concepts combined, like that combined with the idea of like happiness is not a destination and like reframing your mindset to think, I just need to design my life around things that I know make me happier and always, you know, try to move in that direction and just try to move more in that direction. Yeah, I think that's... That's right. To move in the direction of the things you you know are verified and valid in bringing you happiness. I think sometimes we can um, put expectations onto things to make us happy that maybe, you know, like if you and I'm not saying you've done this, but you put the expectation potentially on early retirement to make you happy. Well, if you weren't happy when you early retired, because it's a big change, you'd been working for 20 plus years, the expectation was letting you down. It wasn't early retirement. It was the expectation that early retirement was going to just all of a sudden miraculously change everything in your life. You know, you don't early retire and then all these other things start falling into place. Oh, you go buy a lottery ticket, you win the lottery, you know, all these other things. It's, well, yeah, the expectation that it was a destination, right, is in, in act, right. It's unrealistic. Okay, so I think this is a good time, Erica, to shift to... Erica's making faces and trying to distract me. The chins are overwhelming. You have a very nice chin. Chin up. Chin up, oh, you know? Thank you. I'm going to scotch tape. I'm going to scotch tape it back so you only see one. Um, I'm just going to get you a webcam. We can fix this problem with like 20 bucks, you know? Just pop a webcam on that thing. Yeah, I'll do it. I'll do it. But it's not a problem. I, I think this is a, a fun angle, you know? Uh, again, I feel like one of your kids... Oh. <laughs> Sorry, Erica keeps making faces on the screen. Very distracting. Okay, so we're going to shift to the various factors that we can start to break down that can have a meaningful influence on your happiness. And again, we're, we're leaning towards a slant of some financial factors, things that sort of take your finances and, and bring you, take your money and bring you money. And we'll share some different kind of comments and some stats and research under each of these. But Let's just start generally with money as a category, right? The age-old question, does money buy happiness? Fuck yeah, it does. (laughs) I don't think it does. Well, 
I don't think it does either. Only because we both are privileged enough where we've earned it over the years based on just being able to be in the position to get jobs that that yeah, paid earned us yeah. money and we will say that is privilege and so it's easy for us to say it does not buy happiness because I don't think we're the target audience necessarily for where this question really can make Well, a I would say, you know, I agree but yes and like we are above the point where we're we're there's a point in the research where money does buy happiness and we are past that point and so there is this kind of study that's been referenced for a very long time and look it's been debunked there's a bunch of views on it i've had people we've talked about this study before i've had people write in is an older study and it basically found that daily happiness did not increase beyond seventy five thousand dollars a year now i don't want to even get into like the semantics of this study and it's older this was an older you know like add inflation to that number it might be a hundred thousand whatever i don't want to get into that because there's just not to me that there's not a lot of value in that the general point here I very much agree on and have experienced myself of like, yes, you, and this is the point you were kind of making, Erica. There is a point where money does buy happiness when you have so little that you don't have a reliable roof over your head and food on the table and transportation and, and some and basic things to be able to take care of you and your family. As soon as you hit a point where you have all of that, and that amount of money is different. Again, this research study that's an old one found that it was around $75,000, but there's a bunch of details of like, you know, size of household and all sorts of stuff. And again, I don't think it's worth getting into all of that here. The point is there's a point where you have have enough money and look enough is relative which is my point where after that there are diminishing returns on money creating any more happiness at that point the marginal utility of more money decreases over time so each additional dollar that is added after you're able to kind of take care of some basics in life and the basics are all relative it contributes less and less overall happiness as your wealth grows i can vouch for that personally and i have anecdotally heard every single person i know pretty much vouch for that that's will that's like in touch with their emotions in reality i would say yeah i i agree with everything you just broke down based on my own experience yeah, so the the next thing on the list is material possessions and that's something that we've talked about you and me on this you and I on this podcast because if we're talking about personal finance, things is something we spend our money on that ends up leading towards more stuff, less money. Something that I've been trying to work on talking myself out of, you know, thinking I need this or that to make me happy. And that kind of leads to conspicuous consumption, which is one of the points in the book. And it doesn't lead to greater happiness because of the hedonic treadmill concept that we talk about over and over, because I think it's really good for all of us to understand that on a loop, no pun intended with the treadmill. But the more you start to see it and notice it, the more you're able to stop it from happening. Um, and we tend to adapt as humans, we tend to adapt to changes in circumstances, which include financial circumstances. This hedonic treadmill theory suggests that people return to a baseline level of happiness after positive or negative events. So you just... You end up in the same place, no matter what. And winning the lottery may lead to, to short-term happiness, but over time you adapt and the initial boost fades. So it's it goes back to that dopamine hit. And one thing to counteract that that came from the Build, you Life, Build the Life You Want book with Arthur Brooks and Oprah is 
finding gratitude for the things you have. Maggie, we've talked about this. When you can find gratitude in what you already have in your life, whether it's material possessions or immaterial possessions that have way more meaning, you know, family, health, things like that. When you find gratitude and truly accept that gratitude and and sit with it, you become less materialistic. That is one of the proven research factors in the book that I found really interesting. Yeah, that is very interesting. But I think overall, the point here is that there is research in addition to Oprah. Like, I don't even need research when Oprah says something. I'm like, cool, that's that's facts. That's the facts. So there is research that shows conspicuous consumption. Again, intentional consumption is different, but conspicuous consumption does not lead to greater happiness. And it also shows that spending money on experiences like travel, concerts, etc. tends to bring more lasting happiness than spending on material possessions. Because those experiences create memories and social connections, which contribute to your overall well-being. And so I just, you know, back to the kind of spirit of what we're trying to bring home here is research shows material possessions don't lead to greater happiness. And Oprah backed it. Yeah, and Oprah said so. Believe it, people. Yeah, Oprah said so. Forget Arthur Brooks, who's been like researching this for his entire career. Not even his entire career. This was like a later in life shift for him, actually. Anyways, let's move. Let's move to a commute because this one was fascinating to me and just I mean some of the research on this and and to to clarify all of these points we're going through are not from this book the build your life you want we're sort of mixing in you know a bunch of different things we've read on these topics but there is research that shows that the trade-off like people like you mentioned this as an example early on Erica the trade-off of people often buy a bigger house and they have to go further out so Atlanta is very much like this like if you want a bigger house you've got to go further out and you have a very long commute to get to most places you might need to get to for jobs in Atlanta. And so I see so many people making those decisions. I mean, I worked with people like that every day where like the majority of people I worked with lived pretty far out. The minority lived closer, lived closer in and had a shorter commute. But the research shows this doesn't pay off. And and I thought there were like some interesting examples that I've heard too of like actually being realistic about how often you're going to use something. So we just had this realization with a car with a third row that we decided to get rid of as a result. But like I heard someone talking about this with houses and, you know, you thinking about like, you're like, oh, I need this bigger house. And it's got this great setup for when guests come. And like sometimes you have guests come like five days a year, right? Or five times a year. And ultimately, like, are you willing to deal with the trade-offs that come from living so far away 360 days a year for those five days a year that you have a little bit more space for guests or some house you want to show off to people or I don't know what the, you know, reasons are. Um, But I thought this was interesting because, I mean, to the spirit of the economics of happiness, it doesn't research shows and, right, this isn't for everybody, but like on average, that when you increase your commute to a longer commute, which often is being done to get a bigger house or more house for your money, if you will, it will not make you happier. And there's one specific stat that actually said you have to make like a full 40% more money in a job to compensate for a longer commute. And right, again, I don't want to like debate the semantics of these specific nuances of these studies, but I think the point is like long commutes tend to suck. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, given that you have no commute right now and my commute is about eight feet (laughs) from my bedroom to my office, like that commute's my favorite. Yeah. But yeah, it's it's the tr- 
all of this is a trade-off. What are you willing to give up to get the thing that you think you want? So you think you want this thing and you've maybe sacrificed something you didn't even know you valued until it's gone. So we we talked about that like for a little bit um, with our house. We've owned it for about 10 years. It's a 100-year-old house. There are things that we want to do to it, but because it's so old, you know, trying to do a remodel or anything to kind of update it in a way that makes it a little more modern or livable for... The purposes of a growing family, it's just not feasible for a house and nor do I want to really like spend the extra money to put ourselves through doing that. But to find something else would mean giving up the location, which is the exact reason we bought this house. And so do I want to give up having like really great restaurants, coffee shops, gyms, yoga studios, hiking areas, my kids school all within walking distance to have a house that then I would potentially be secluded in. So I better love that house and I better never leave it. And the answer is no, I don't want to. I agree. You live in a great area. And I enjoy coming to visit you and getting to stay in that house. Yeah, thanks. I love coming to stay in your house too. But you did all those remodels. And so that's why I love being in your house. Well, you know, another thing that is worth noting on commutes is I know particularly in my city, at least, one of the other reasons people do move out further is for quote-unquote better school districts. I'm not going to get into it. I don't actually agree with that statement because I think there's a bunch of things that go into like what makes quote a a good school on paper versus like an actual school I want my kids going to that mimics the real world. But uh, well, I guess I did kind of just get into it. But I will say, so I get that. Like that is, if if that's, like you said, it's a trade-off. So it might be that, you know, you don't want to send your kids to private school. And so for the schools that you want, you feel comfortable with or whatever, you want to go further out to get to those school districts and it's you do you right it's a trade-off and I think that the idea is you want to very intentionally decide and make these trade-offs so making the trade-off for schools for your kids is one thing that's quite different than making the trade-off to have a bigger house right and so I, I think it's just our point is like be thoughtful and intentional about these decisions and you know think twice because these are big decisions that impact you every day with your commute as an example yeah, and and this isn't necessarily related to the commute, but one thing that I took out of the book is that we all as humans have a tendency towards a negativity bias. So you could be in a job review. This is the example Arthur Brooks gave. You could be in a job review and it's glowing, except there's one thing that you need to work on. That will tend to be the one thing that you focus on. Yeah, that you harp on. As a negativity that you harp on, that sits with you. And it's like, well, what about all the really positive stuff? And so what he recommends is, he calls it emotional substitution. You know, focusing, taking that emotion, substituting it with another. And this isn't like being inauthentic. It's trying to switch your brain, making it a practice to focus on the good things, the positive things, you know, like with the negativity bias, you know, if if you're really weighing a big decision, try to see if there are some positives it's it's the same as a pros cons list and then just deciding which one outweighs the other and i think maybe pros and cons lists are not given as much credence as they should be because it does help you weigh something instead of making a very detrimental life decision that you think will make you happy because the grass is greener yeah and then you end up regretting that and you just invested a lot of money into that major regret yeah So kind of along the lines of what we're talking about, but switching it is uh, talking about jobs and research supports that specific jobs don't make you happier. It's more about how that job is a fit for you and not the amount of money you're paid. And does the job, does the job stress you out? Does it defeat you? I mean, 
Yeah, I was pretty fascinated by that finding, honestly, because, you know, over the years, I feel like I've heard different stats about, like, dentists have really low job satisfaction or different things, though I've met plenty of happy dentists. And I just thought what was fascinating about it was that it is more tied to whether that job is a good fit for you and that, in general, work that raises your happiness is not tied to a specific income or specific prestige. Like, it it doesn't, you can, like, the science says you can be just as happy in a, quote, lower prestige recognition job, but that is a very good fit for, like, what you enjoy doing and what fits your personality well. And that, again, gives you enough money to make a living and support your family and do the, you know, have the experiences you want, but might not make you, you know, quote, unquote, rich from it. And I, you just need, you know, enough money to get by, as we've discussed, and get by as relative. But I just was fascinated by that because I would have... I don't know. I don't know. I kind of would have maybe thought differently, but I think this is a great reminder that it's more about finding the job that's right for you. And and just as a quick example, I know someone who's like super crazy smart, went to Stanford, like just really, really smart, became a lawyer, was miserable, eventually quit that job, became a teacher, is incredibly happy as a teacher, right? He had a lot more quote unquote, like prestige and definitely income, like 10 times the, 10, 20 times the income as a lawyer than he is as a teacher. He is significantly happier. It is a better fit for him. I know other people who are very happy as lawyers. They have a lot of income and prestige and they love it. I think it, like you said, it's, it's what fits for you. And I think a lot of that can tie into the societal pressures that have been just looming for the last like 50 years that I think are going away where people don't need titles as bragging rights. Like I am not this position. Like this is where I work and this is what I do during the day. Because when you, you know, with this friend you're talking about, I've worked around lawyers for the last 20 years of my career, though I am not one. And the more I work with lawyers, the more I do not want to be one because I see the stress, the pressure, they're paid, they're paid well, but they're also on call all the time. Yeah. They don't, you know, if that's what you want, that's great. If that's the life you choose for yourself, then awesome. But that's also not what a lot of people want. A lot of times people don't want to make partner. Yeah. And I think when you can recognize in whatever profession you're in that you're happy to go to work, make a living, do good work that you find meaningful to you, and then go home to your life. Like our work should not define us. It's what we do when we're outside of work that should define us. I totally agree. I remember once, like maybe 10 years ago, hearing the question in a leadership class of, do you work to live or do you live to work? And I at the time was living to work, but I eventually shifted to working to live, which is what you were just saying. And that to me was just like a big mindset shift for me of like the purpose of my job and and why I had it. And I enjoyed my job in, in many ways. I, in terms of like being a good fit for me and my personality, it actually was a good fit for me. And so I, I wasn't unhappy as a result of my job. It was more the volume of it and me wanting to, you know, have more freedom and other things. But yeah, I just thought, to me, this is one of the more surprising ones. Surprising, but not surprising when I really, like, think about it more. Yeah. Well, the fact that it's surprising to you is interesting to me because I think, you know, you and I have both worked in corporate worlds for a majority of our careers. I haven't ever managed people. I sort of felt that that should be something I should want to strive to. And I had, like, maybe a lot of, not shame, because it's not shame, I don't know how to define the emotion, but like, oh, I should be striving for more. 
But it wasn't because of anything I wanted for myself. And like in the last, you know, probably since COVID times, I've accepted like I'm actually quite content in the role that I have. I contribute within my company and the jobs I have and don't need to. It's a lot of outward societal pressure that makes you have thoughts like that. And then another quick point, which I just think is interesting, Erica, I don't think you and I had this growing up. I don't believe you did at least. And I know I didn't, but there are culturally a lot of people and I know them well who talk about their families and how like culturally, like they are not successful if they're not like a lawyer or a doctor. And then also if they don't also marry a lawyer or a doctor. And that to me was always like, I can imagine putting that pressure on my kids, right? And I'm not like, I mean, you do you, but like, I, I am very thankful that I never had that sort of pressure on me. And I will not be putting that kind of pressure on my kids because I know that that will drive them more likely towards a life of unhappiness. Right. And or even if they go and choose what makes them happy, they forever are like getting, you know, crap from their parents that they're like a disappointment, which is like real. I hear that from many people I know. Well, and that's the thing, too, like totally getting away from the financial side of this. But if you're doing something to make somebody else happy, you are likely not happy. You're not driven by your own happiness. You're just working to create happiness in someone else, which is that extrinsic. It's not even motivation. It's just an extrinsic pressure from somebody else. And also, I wonder if all those people who are insisting that their kids become a doctor or lawyer, if they're truly happy, they'd probably just like at the end of the day, you kind of just want your kids to be happy and healthy and successful in whatever makes them happy as long as they're not living on your couch as an adult, right? I mean, I think (laughs) maybe we can make it that simple. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I want them to be like, you know, happy, productive people that can live on their own couch if they need to. Right. But but going into kind of the external pressures, I think that's where all of what we're talking about kind of ties in together, like hedonic treadmill, grass is greener. It's trying to play into what's presented to us within society and knowing to stand your ground. Like, I don't need the newest model of car. I don't need the bigger house. You know, people should, in theory, like you for you, not because of your stuff. Mm -hmm. I love you for your really old Lexus. I could care less. It's not like Thank something... You. I mean, I happen to know you have one, and I actually think it's a badge of honor. Okay. It is only because the landlord wouldn't let us get rid of it years ago, so now I'm just accepting <laughs> and loving her for her... She's great. All her wrinkles and scratches. I have many fond memories of her. Okay, so I think... We'll, we'll hit some of these next ones pretty quickly, but like another one that is interesting is location. So there actually is research that shows that the location of where you live does have... It is a big factor that influences our happiness. And it is things like, you know, what jobs are available, uh, what people and relationships and communities are around. Do we have different, you know, hobbies and things we can pursue in the area we live in and things like that. And so, again, this is very tied to like you personally and what makes you happy. But I think about this a lot. I have like a big, growing up in Atlanta, like I've got a big, you know, community and a lot of family and friends here and everything else. And like that does aid in my happiness. And in addition from that, I like Atlanta. If I didn't like it, I would move somewhere else, right? Versus I know you have a lot of like friends in Portland. You don't have family in Portland. Well, you have your, you have the landlord's family. Yes. But that even having one other, you know, like half of your family there, I think aids in your level of happiness and research does support that. Right. There are people who will move somewhere because they 
they want to be in a certain city because of the appeal and then they find out they're very isolated and alone and it's hard to meet people and that yeah it's a high cost of living it's like all these factors together right right? that are that matter and so it's not that like San Diego is the happiest city to live in, right? It's a super high cost of living. But like San Diego is an example. For some people, it's an awesome place to live, right? If they can afford to live there, if they can maintain their lifestyle, if they have a good community around them, if they like the beach, which I love the beach. It, it, it matters more around you and your fit with that location, just like it does with jobs. Yeah, so along those lines of other simple things that will move through is age. And I'm just curious, Maggie, can you say at what age you were happiest? Well, you know, I have a bad memory. So it's today age. <laughs> yeah. I, I, yeah. Yesterday. No, I can't. I, I actually will tie to that. I actually think I'm maybe a, my happiest times are either, I don't know, sometimes I like, you know, think back to like high school or something, but like, I kind of think my happiest times are now, but I don't know if that's because I have a bad memory or, it's just like a recency factor, you know, recency bias. What about you? When do you think you're happier? Have been most happy? Was it when yeah, we were I don't know. I, rocking I, together in high school? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> high school. I mean, like, who doesn't say high school is their happiest? Like, unless you're Al Bundy, which is maybe a dated reference. Definitely a dated reference. But yeah, I think I would say like the last 10 years, I think the more that I've kind of like fallen into myself the, the older I get the more hindsight and awareness I have and I grow into the person I want yeah. to be you know how they like yeah you you kind of say like eat like the person you hope to be to be healthy think that way and I not like I'm necessarily trying to do those things but I'm I'm trying to build myself to be the person I want to be and I'm seeing that like the work that I'm doing falling into place and feeling proud of that person and that's leading to the happiness in like all the other areas in my life. I think that's awesome America and I don't know if you would agree but I feel like part of that is you have more gratitude now and appreciation for everything that like it's I, I think as we get older we have more gratitude and perspective in life and that makes us happier. Agreed. Yeah, it's it's definitely the perspective looking back on things that well, just knowing like having the lived experience to be like, did that make me happy? No. Yeah. Well, let's do whatever the thing is that will make me happy and knowing knowing and actively working on those things. And and yeah, I mean, it's just I, I don't fear aging in that way. And and for that reason, it makes me more aware of wanting to be financially stable to try to live and use my money intentionally. Yeah, that's interesting. So the research says that happiness peaks around the age of 18, which uh, falls in line with us saying we loved high school. And then it goes downhill until about age 50. And so, and you know, Erica and I aren't 50 yet. Uh, We're in our early to mid 40s, but... Let's say early. early. Let's be generous. I'm I'm closer to the mids than you, but... Okay, we're two months apart. Oh, yeah, that's right. I was thinking because we're a grade apart, but you're very close. Then let's go with early. We're like a month and a half apart. Let's go. We're, we're basically we're twins. Basically we're basically the same person. So, and then, and it, it actually, like, as you get older, it increases too. So there, there's research that supports that, like, you're happier at 85 than you are at 18, which I think is interesting at, because I could see being 85 and looking back and reflecting upon your life and, and feeling good about it versus when you're 18, you're sort of looking forward, you 
you know? And along the same lines, the other day I was talking to Kate, who is 12, my, my daughter who's 12, about something and she, I was, I don't remember what got us on this topic, but I said something like, are you excited to like grow up and be an adult? Or I was saying something about like, or, do you want to get older? Or do you want to be an adult or like college or something? And she was like, no way. She's like, you guys have so many responsibilities. And I was kind of like, oh, like, I, I like that answer. Cause like, you should enjoy being a kid and appreciate that. Like, yes, there's a lot on their plates in many ways, but there's not in many ways, you know, like a lot is done for them and given to them. Yeah. Yeah. That's very true. I think a really good thing and probably the best thing that we could potentially end on for a point in this economics of happiness discussion is relationships. And there has been a Harvard study, which makes us sound like elitist, but I guess they just have all the grants to do the money, to do the research, I mean, is this person hey, Erica, did like a 50 year. No. Hey, hey, I was going to say, hey, speaking of money, it was the longest study on human happiness I think ever done. Oh, yeah. The longest study. Yeah, this one, actually, this is very interesting. And Maggie's going to put the link in the show notes to this Atlantic article. Hopefully, you can get the free version of it. Uh, but it was a study done by Robert Waldinger. And it followed people for 50 years throughout their journey of like what actually, not even journey, just their lives of what made them happier. And the the main thing was positive relationships or just relationships, just anyone being in your life in a positive way. And especially as you get older, relationships are the thing that help quell, you know, mental decline. It helps with physical ailments. It's just creating things that have kind of been lost, especially in our Western societies. And so I think this is a perfect one to end on as far as you don't need to spend money to find happiness. You need to find meaningful relationships. And actually, I will tout a book that I just read that was amazing by David Brooks, no relation to Arthur Brooks. Brooks Brothers. Called How to Know a Person. Brooks Brothers. How to Know a Person, The Art of Seeing Others Deeply. And it's how to truly listen and be present with someone. And it goes through very different, different parts of how to do it just on a day-to-day -day basis, but also how to do it in this divisive world in which we're living. And I think that ties in really well with, yes, you have to have relationships. That's really the key to all of this. But how meaningful are your relationships? Yeah. And I think once you have, I think when you can find those meaningful relationships, you really don't need a lot more. You know, you, you feel fulfilled in ways that the stuff we're talking about doesn't do that for the for the long term. Yeah, that like you said, money can't buy. I think this one was um, validated in real life during COVID because there was a lot of observations and situations where people were realizing how isolated they felt during a time. And, and if you were isolated, like in your house with your family, that was one thing. But a lot of people were isolated by themselves. And it was incredibly isolating and had a big impact on their mental health and well-being and ultimately their happiness. And I think it was just kind of that point being brought to life in a very recent happening in our world. Okay, so I think we can bring this home. And I think it's worth just a quick recap of what we talked about today, because I, I think there was a lot there. And the idea that like, 
happiness really does come down to your own attitude, taking pleasure in the small things in life, like the glimmers of hope and tiny joys that we talked about. We'll put a link in the show notes to an episode Eric and I did on that a couple months ago, like appreciating what you do have versus what you don't have, having a, you know, glass half full perspective and attitude. And it, it really is an exercise in like mind over matter, like literally of the, the science of, of becoming more happy and getting to that happier state versus this elusive place of happiness that we'll, we'll never find. But just to recap, what research supports does make you happier versus doesn't make you happier? I think it's interesting to like think about these things almost as a list, right? So the following things do correlate to happiness, right? Having at least, look, this is the old study, but at least $75,000 in income. Again, I'd call it add some inflation to that and a higher number, but an amount of income to cover the basics. Spending money on other people and charity has been shown to make you happier. Spending money on experiences over material things, living closer to your job and or having remote work, again, not having a commute, and having a satisfying job and feeling like you were able to contribute in your environment, again, tied to what works for you specifically. Strong social ties, like Erica said. Being older, And then a bonus one we didn't talk about. Actually, regular monogamous sex has proven to make you happier, which I kind of thought was interesting for everybody who might be in like a long term, or I say long term, but like, you know, 10, 20, 30. You're having a drought. Like if you're having a drought for everyone who, who, when you're in a, my point was more if you're in like a long monogamous relationship, often there are people that get to a phase in their life and they're you're yearning or idealizing bonering some lifestyle where you want, you know, that you might've had when you were younger and, you know, uh, in your younger days. But it's kind of interesting that research actually supports that the number of sexual partners you have does not increase your happiness. It actually lowers it. And so apparently monogamy is pretty sexy. Just thought I'd uh, throw that one in as a bonus tip for you guys. Just the tip. Okay, Erica. Tip. Tip. Okay, so things that do not correlate to happiness. Seeking extreme wealth. Wishing you were back in your 20s. And having lots of sex. Buying a bunch and having lots of sex with bunches of people. Bunches of oats. Bunches of oats and people. Buying a bunch of stuff and junk. Stuff equals junk. Junk equals stuff. Having a lengthy commute so you can have a bigger house. Isolating yourself from others or being alone. that's, That's the biggest thing that doesn't correlate to happiness, which... I think is yeah is the most important one. Yeah, I think what's so interesting about these lists of kind of what does and doesn't correlate to happiness, which again, we're summing up as the economics of happiness, is most of the things that create happiness don't involve massive amounts of money. And I think that is the number one takeaway. If you were like, what the crap were y'all just talking about for the last hour? That's our point. Turns yeah. out money doesn't buy We don't buy even happy. know. <laughs> a, yeah. we don't know. We don't even know what we're... We don't know. Don't ask us again. But what we do know is money does not buy happiness. Yep. Nor does it buy friends. Nor does it buy set... Okay, let's just get off this topic. Hold on. Let's, could... let's, let's just say thank you for listening, given that your time is thank limited and valuable. Thank you for listening. Because your time is limited and valuable. Oh my gosh. We appreciate you spending some of it with us. We do. And if you've enjoyed today's episode, please give us a written review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We truly appreciate it. We do. It sounds like you're reading a script, Erica. We also encourage you to share this episode with a friend or family member 
But seriously, this is a really good episode to share with other people because this to me, these are like fun dinner table conversations to me. You can also subscribe. Fancy dinner? No. Fancy dinner? Not a fancy dinner. Conversations or like homemade grilled cheese. I learned, why don't I eat grilled cheese? Homemade grilled vegan cheese. Yeah. Vegan cheese. I don't really like vegan cheese. That does not melt. Vegan cheese is mostly like oil and stuff. Anyways, you can also subscribe where you listen to podcasts. And we always love to hear from you guys. So if you have any thoughts or questions, you can leave us a voicemail. You can text us at 404-981-3370. Or you can hit us up on Instagram. Okay. We should magically be happier now, Erica. I feel happier because I just spent an hour with you. And I learned that that actually does increase my happiness. If I didn't already know it, research now reminded me. I reminded you. You did. I'm your research. You are my research. Okay. Thanks, Erica. Bye. Thanks, Maggie. Bye, everyone. Bye.